0: Welcome to Creation, Myth or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist, Richard Walker. For today's show, let's do something a little bit different than what we usually do. And let's not look so directly at science, but rather let's look more at the Bible itself. Now, have you ever heard, or perhaps I should say, how often have you heard, that you can't trust the Bible, it's full of contradictions. I know I've heard it, and I've read that type of thing written many, many times. There's an excellent, easy-to-understand book on this subject titled Demolishing Supposed Bible Contradictions, Exploring 40 Alleged Contradictions, edited by Ken Ham. Some of what we're going to present today on this subject is from this book. Highly recommended. There have been several surveys recently of young people who leave the church in one of the surveys focused on how do they view the Bible. 44% said they believe the Bible is not true and accurate. Why do they think this? 24% of them said, well, it's just a book written by men. 15% said it contradicts itself. 14% said science shows the world is very old. 11% of them said the Bible has errors in it. And 4% said evolution proves the Bible wrong. So 68% of them imply the Bible contains contradictions to fact. So let's try to examine that topic. Now it's certainly true that the Bible has some rather unusual and seemingly absurd items in it. Things like floating axe heads, people walking on water, a universe created in six days, Talking snakes and donkeys. It has dragons in it. And, of course, a senior citizen who takes two of every kind of animal on a great big boat. Now, the truth is, God acting miraculously can explain these. However, internal contradictions are even worse. Two contradictory statements can't both be true. For example, dry water. Or a married bachelor. Or a true falsehood? A genuine contradiction can't be true even in principle. A genuine contradiction would mean that the Bible is not true and this cannot be resolved by a miracle. Now we need to be careful to distinguish a contradiction versus an argument. An argument is a connected series of statements to establish a proposition. An argument is an intellectual process a contradiction occurs when one proposition exactly negates another proposition. Here's a famous example discussing this issue.
1: Hi. Is this the right one for an argument? I've told you once. <laughs> no, you haven't. Yes, I have When? Just now. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. I, did. I didn't. Oh, I'm <laughs> telling you I did. You did not. Oh, I'm sorry, is this a five-minute argument or the full half-hour? Oh, oh, just the five minute one. Fine. Thank you. Anyway, I did. You most certainly did not. now let's get one thing quite clear. I most definitely told you. You did not? Yes, I did. You did not? Yes, I did. Didn't? Yes, I did. Didn't? (laughs) Yes, I did. did. (laughs) Look, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. (laughs) It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. It is. (laughs) You just contradicted me. No, I didn't. Oh, you did. No, 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 no. You did just now. No, 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 nonsense. Oh, look, this is futile. No, it isn't. I came here for a good argument. No, you didn't. You came here for an argument. Well, an argument's not the same as contradiction. Can be. No, it can't. An argument's a collective series of statements to establish a definite proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It isn't just contradiction. Look, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. But it isn't just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. (laughs) Argument's an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic game saying of anything the other person says. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. No, look, Thank you. Good morning. What? That's it. Good morning. But I was just getting interested. Sorry, the five minutes is up. <laughs> that was never five minutes just now. I'm afraid it was. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not allowed to argue anymore. What? If you want me to go on arguing, I'll have to pay for another five minutes. But that was never five minutes just now. Oh, come on. <laughs> This is ridiculous. I'm very sorry, but I told you I'm not allowed to argue unless you pay. Oh, all right. There you are. Thank you. Well? Well, what? That was never five minutes just now. I told you I'm not allowed to argue unless you pay. I just paid. No, you didn't. I did! <laughs> I did! I did! I <laughs> do not argue about that. Well, I'm very sorry, but you didn't pay. Aha! Well, if I didn't pay, why are you arguing? Got gotcha. you. There you have it. Is that? If you're arguing, I must have paid. Not necessarily. I could be arguing in my spare time.
0: Well, I suppose I should apologize for that, but I just couldn't resist because it so perfectly illustrates the distinction between just plain old contradicting one another and actually forming a logical argument. Let's take a look at what it takes to have a true contradiction in scripture or anywhere else for that matter. We're examining the common claim that the Bible cannot be trusted because it's full of contradictions. Let's start with perhaps the most common accusation. The Bible can't be trusted because it contains accounts of miracles, and miracles are clearly impossible. Now, this argument begs the question, because an all-powerful God, as described in the Bible, could clearly perform miracles. By assuming miracles are impossible, the critic has already dismissed the possibility that the Bible is true. So this is an example of a circular argument and thus is invalid. It has no logical value. The critic assumed what he claims to have concluded. He actually first assumed the Bible isn't true and then claimed to have concluded that the Bible isn't true. So there's actually a logical problem with that particular claim against scripture. Let's move on to a different type of problem. It just doesn't seem possible. This is really just an assumption that the Bible is false. It's really a psychological opinion and not a rational argument at all. Now, some theologians claim parts of the Bible are false because they contradict, quote, the nature of God, end quote. Well, note first that this assumes the theologian has rather good knowledge of the nature of God. And then consider that in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, it says, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor. So internally, the Bible contradicts this false idea that the theologian might fully understand the nature of God. So that, again, is really a psychological problem. It tells us more about the emotional state of the critic rather than being a true challenge to the Bible itself. All right, so what is a true contradiction? Okay, listen closely. A contradiction is a proposition and its exact opposite at the same time and in the same sense. Symbolically, this is written as a and not a. Now, Proposition A and not A could both be true at different times. Or A and not A could both be true in different senses. For example, a bachelor could be married to his job. That's a different sense of the word married. Now, most of the claimed contradictions in the Bible are actually a variety of types of non-contradictions. One common one is the false dilemma. Perhaps the most famous false dilemma is, have you stopped beating your wife? This statement implies that there's only one of two possibilities. Either you are still beating your wife, or you used to be beating her and you've stopped. This is a false dilemma because it ignores the possibility that perhaps you never were beating your wife. Now here's an example of that applied to scripture. Was the Bible given by inspiration of God, as indicated in 2 Timothy 3.16? Or was it written by men, as indicated in other passages like Luke 1.3? The implication is that only one of these can be true, and so the Bible must contain errors. But this is the fallacy of the false dilemma, because there is no reason why the Bible cannot both be inspired by God and also written by men. Another example of a false dilemma is when two words or names are synonymous. Is Reuben the son of Jacob in Genesis 35 or the son of Israel in Genesis 46? Well, both are true because Israel is Jacob. He had both names. Now, as simple as this sounds when you analyze it, this type of false argument is frequently presented. Some other examples of alleged contradictions commit the fallacy of taking the text out of context. For example, Genesis 1.1 indicates that God exists and has made everything. Suppose someone argued that this contradicts Psalm 14.1, in which we read, There is no God. But to think this is actually a contradiction is absurd because the quote from Psalm 14 was taken out of context. What it actually says is, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. So when you consider the context, there's no contradiction whatsoever. Don't forget, the Bible actually records the statements of various individuals, and it records events that it does not condone as appropriate behavior. To be fair to any written work, as well as the Bible, you have to take into account the author's intentions when we study it. Historical narration should be taken in the normal way. Poetic passages in the Bible should not be pressed beyond their intention. And prophetic sections often use a lot of verbal imagery that should be taken as such. The figures of speech in the Bible should not be taken as anything other than figures of speech. So, no, the earth does not literally have pillars or corners, but it does figuratively. Even today we'll reference somebody and say they're a pillar of their community, and you still sometimes hear the phrase, the four corners of the earth. To ignore that these are figures of speech and try to turn them into a contradiction of fact is to commit the fallacy of taking the text out of context. Also, don't forget that just as we do today, the Bible sometimes uses the language of appearance. That is, something is described as it appears from a human perspective. For example, the Bible mentions sunrise and sunset. When the Bible uses those terms, that's no more implying a misunderstanding of astronomy than it is when we use those terms today. It's clearly the language of appearance and nothing more. We're analyzing the claim that the Bible is filled with contradictions, a claim which is often made, and we're examining various types of statements which are claimed to be contradictions but really are not. Another type is the fallacy of sweeping generalization. There are often times in the Bible where it speaks in terms of generalizations, things that are usually but not universally true. The book of Proverbs has many of these. It's not a contradiction to have some instances where a general rule does not apply. And the Proverbs are not meant to be taken as absolute rules for all time and all place, but rather as general principles that usually apply. Now, the Bible sometimes has actual rules, but rules which can have exceptions. For example, the Bible teaches it is wrong to kill, and yet understandably makes exceptions for self-defense punishment for certain types of extreme crimes, and during battle. These exceptions to a general principle or exceptions to a rule are not contradictions, and so they pose no challenge to the Christian worldview. Well, another type of problem that can arise is due to the fact that most of us read the Bible in something other than the original languages. And so this allows the possibility of translational issues. One example of confusion that can arise due to translation is found in John chapter 21, 15 through 17. Here Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter replies three times that he does love Jesus. In English translations, one word is used for love for all of these instances, and the conversation seems rather strange. However, in Greek, there's two different words for love that are used. When Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, he uses the word agape, which means a selfless, godly love. But when Peter answers him, He uses the word phileo, which means brotherly love. So, although "loves" a perfectly correct way to translate both words, you lose some of the subtlety of the original by reading it only in English. And there are some instances where the correct English translation of particular words is somewhat disputed. And so, one needs to be careful to try to stay true to the original intentions of the author and understand what they are really saying, and make a careful study of the word or phrase in question, It's disingenuous to accuse the Bible of a contradiction in an English translation when there's no contradiction in the original language. Additionally, there are slight variations in ancient manuscripts of the Bible. Although none of the ancient variants differ in any essential way, some do contain differences of numbers, spelling, or occasionally a word or phrase. In most cases, it's easy to tell from context which variant is the original, Variations in ancient manuscripts that are clearly copious errors should not be taken as the intention of the author since the author is not responsible for transmission errors. The consistent Christian does not claim that a miscopying of scripture contains no errors, only that the original manuscripts contain none since they were divinely inspired. Therefore, an alleged contradiction can be dismissed if the ancient manuscripts do not contain the error nor are contradictions of inference a genuine problem for the christian worldview a contradiction of inference is where we merely infer a contradiction that the text does not actually state one example would be to ask where did mary and joseph take jesus after bethlehem matthew 2:13 to 15 indicates that they went to egypt to be safe from king herod however luke 2:22 and 39 indicate they took the child to jerusalem which is only a few miles from Bethlehem, and then to Nazareth after that. There's no mention of Egypt in Luke's account. Is this a contradiction? Although we might infer that both Matthew and Luke are describing the same period of time and the same visit to the Bethlehem region, the text does not actually state this. Perhaps Matthew is describing a second journey to Bethlehem, or possibly one of the surrounding regions, In fact, the visit of the wise men may have been as much as two years after the birth of Christ, according to Matthew 2.16. So it may be that Joseph and his family went to Nazareth a few months after the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, and then to Egypt after a second trip to the Bethlehem region. Although this is only one possibility, the point is that there is no necessary contradiction between Matthew 2 and Luke 2, Any apparent conflict exists only in the mind, not in the text. By the way, if there is an explanation that removes the contradiction, then there is no contradiction. Another form of contradiction of inference occurs if a reader erroneously assumes that a number state in the Bible, for example, X, indicates only X and not more. For example, consider the account of the demon-possessed man that's recorded in Mark 5 and Luke 8. Now, according to Matthew chapter 8, there were two men who were demon-possessed. Does this conflict with Mark and Luke? While we might try to infer from Mark and Luke that there was only one man, the text does not actually say this. So, to call this a contradiction is to commit the X and only X fallacy. After all, if there were two men, then it's also true there was one as well as another one. The fact that Mark and Luke do not mention the other man is interesting. Perhaps one man was much more violent or otherwise noteworthy than the other, but we're only speculating. In any case, Mark and Luke do not say there was only one man. Therefore, there's no contradiction here. Actually, a contradiction of inference only tells us that we have incorrectly inferred things from the text that aren't actually provided or stated there. It's a really good idea to avoid drawing dogmatic conclusions from things the Bible does not actually state. We're continuing to examine the question of whether or not the Bible is actually filled with contradictions, as is often claimed. Another criticism might be called an apparent factual contradiction, where rather than claiming the Bible contradicts itself it is claimed the Bible contradicts a well-established fact. There are actually two types of alleged factual contradictions, and both turn out to be fallacious. The first type comes from misreading the biblical text. And this could stem from any of the types of fallacies that we've already discussed. A word could be taken in the wrong sense, a verse taken out of context, could be a translational issue, or a manuscript dispute, or something could be assumed to be a teaching of scripture, when it's actually only an inference by the reader. A commonly used example of this type of alleged factual contradiction is the claim that the Bible teaches that the earth is stationary and that that contradicts the fact that the earth moves around the sun. In this case, biblical passages such as Psalm 93 and 96 have been taken out of context. These are poetic passages indicating the world has been established by God and will not deviate from his plan. These poems are not attempting to develop an astronomical model and actually say nothing about physical motion. In fact, consider that the psalmist also says, I shall not be moved in Psalm 16.8. Clearly, the author does not mean to tell you that he will be physically stationary, but rather he means to say he will not deviate from the path God has created for him. The second type of alleged factual contradiction fallacy is when the critic understands the Bible okay, but he's confused about what the external facts actually are. This usually occurs when secular beliefs are assumed to be facts beyond question. Examples include the Big Bang, evolution, billions of years of time scale, naturalism, etc. Some of the very things we've been discussing on this program. Science makes a lot of claims which cannot be substantiated. And the Bible does contradict many such claims. However, the critic is actually only assuming that the Bible is wrong. He argues that the Bible contradicts these, quote, facts, so it must be wrong. This is the fallacy of begging the question. The critic is actually simply assuming the Bible's wrong because they have assumed the stated secular facts are true. This is really nothing more than a vicious circle argument. Remember the Monty Python skit we listened to earlier? This kind of understanding occurs so often that it's really important to pay close attention to the claims coming out of the arena of secular science. Now, this entire discussion has been assuming, and rightly so, something called the law of non-contradiction. And that is, that a contradiction is actually a problem with a truth statement. That's the idea that A and not A simply can't both be true. Let me ask you a question. Why is the law of non-contradiction true? Ironically, the law of non-contradiction has its origin in the Bible itself. According to the Bible, all truth is in God, and God cannot deny himself. So it makes sense that truth cannot go against itself. The universal, unchanging law of non-contradiction stems from God's self-consistent nature. But apart from the Bible, how would you know that contradictions are always false? The best you could do is say, well, they've always been false in our experience, but our experiences are limited and no one has experienced the future. Contradictions are only false if you assume a biblical worldview. Much like lying is only wrong, if you assume there's an absolute moral standard against it, which also comes from a biblical worldview. And furthermore, we discussed back on the September 2nd show that the biblical worldview is the basis of modern science, and even atheist philosophers have admitted that. So it's actually rather ironic to think about it. You have a critic who disbelieves the biblical worldview, but then uses that very worldview to attack those who believe in the Bible. For example, it is often claimed, as you've heard me state, that creationists are all liars. Well, first of all, it's not true. But secondly, so what? If the Bible isn't true, what's wrong with that? In fact, on our September 11th broadcast, we documented that some evolutionists flat out say it's perfectly okay to deceive students in order to gain their trust and get them to believe in evolution. So, for evolutionists, lying is perfectly okay. It's sort of like the observation that some, a few, very rabid atheists seem to absolutely hate the very God that they claim they don't believe exists. We'll continue in our next show with some more specific claimed contradictions in Scripture and how they might be analyzed, But for the moment, I want to finish this show by thinking about the bigger picture here. There's really two approaches that skeptics take to any subject and to Christianity and the Bible in particular. One is to be actually seeking to determine what's really true, what's really real out there in the world. And a person taking this approach to the Bible may be concerned about the appearance of contradictions because that would be a reason to disbelieve the truth of the Bible. Now, that type of person will be open to the discussion of actually analyzing the claimed contradictions. However, there are other skeptics that have no interest in actually seeking the truth. They think they already know it. But they point to things like claimed contradictions in the Bible as reasons to disbelieve it, while they have no interest and won't listen to explanations that remove the apparent contradiction. For them, they say these are reasons, but they are actually excuses. And don't forget that the Apostle Paul wrote that there is evidence of God in the creation around us, and those who deny it are without excuse. See creationmythormiracle.com.